Whosoever is delighted in solitude is either a wild beast or a god. Aristotle. Welcome to the first official episode of our companion podcast to the History Channel's epic solo adventure show, Alone. We decided on solitude for the name of the pod since Alone was already taken and trademarked, and because solitude represents the reality for the contestants on this show. For those few of you who are tuning in and have no idea what Alone is actually about, we're going to break it down for you before we get into our discussion of the first two episodes of season seven. My co-host for this pod is Jukebox, a fan favorite from my other podcast, the John Freakin' Muir Pod. How's it going, Jukebox? It's going well, Doc. I'm, uh, I'm really excited about this endeavor, this podcast. You know, I'm, I've been a fan of the show alone for a while now, since you introduced me way back when. I remember watching the season from 2016 in my dorm room at UCLA. I was an avid fan of the show then, and... Uh, I'm just really excited to cover this season, and I hope it hope it goes well. Nice. Now, I hope I hope I'm I'm not wrong on this, but I did actually did a search in Apple Podcasts. I, I did a search for a companion podcast for the show alone, and I couldn't find any out there. So, as far as I know, and I'm sure our listeners will correct me if I'm wrong. As far as I know, this is the companion podcast for the the show alone on the History Channel. Yeah, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. You know, it's either a lot of pressure on us or we were just bad using the algorithm and we were way wrong and there's so many other podcasts out there about this. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look at this as no pressure whatsoever. I mean, if we're the only one out there, it's like the, you know, the only bar in town. They can only go to one place for this information, so. That's true. I'm hoping that your, you know, your hiker fan base from the John Frick and your pod is, you know, also maybe interested in a, in a little bit of bushcraft and survival. Yeah, we'll see how that translates, uh, see what the listens look like. I thought it was interesting um, the, in the trailer that we did for, the, for this podcast, we kind of went through and looked at different quotes out there, trying to capture the essence of, of what this show is about. And we, we arrived at the, the quote from Aristotle that you guys heard in the, the, the intro to this podcast. And I realized after the fact, when I watched that first episode, Again, that is the opening uh, quote for episode one, season seven, episode one. Uh, and, it is. You know, I, I couldn't believe that. I said, well, is he playing a, a prank on me? Because you had come up with the quote first, and then I eventually saw it in my searches and brought it up. He says, well, I already said that one. I was like, okay, let's do that one. And it turns out when I turn on episode one, that that's the very first quote you see. So. Yeah, I'm taking that as, as a sign, a positive sign. Lightning has struck twice, and we're going to be on fire with this podcast. So I'm, I'm really excited about this. And speaking, speaking of the intro to the podcast, which you just heard before we started talking here, uh, I, I kind of put that together, and we used uh, the, the quote from Aristotle in, in Jukebox Reading, and he read it so dramatically, I thought, oh, this is perfect for the, just our standard intro to the, to the podcast. And then I, I actually uh, snuck uh, Sneaky Pete into the, the intro, that the, the, the wolf howling. That's not actually a wolf. That's, 
that's our dog, Sneaky Pete, and we've kind of uh, adjusted the tone and the the speed of his howl. We got him to howl, and I worked that into the into the promo or the intro. So, hope you guys like that. Yeah, yeah, Doc, you're doing quite a bit of bragging here now. The uh, the audio editing has to be perfect now. Otherwise, they're gonna they're gonna be all up on you. It's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. All right. Hey, let's get down to how the show works. <clears throat> so for those, for those few people on the planet who have not watched the show, and I'm saying that facetiously, um, basically there are 10 individuals, 10 contestants, and they're dropped off in 10 separate locations in the same general vicinity where they are isolated from each other. And the winner simply is the person who stays out there the longest. Now they're dropped, they're dropped basically in the middle of nowhere with limited provisions. And they are truly alone. They have each been given camera equipment and training to document their experience out there. So unlike other reality shows like Survivor, um, the contestant does not have a camera crew filming his or her every action. The contestant is the camera person. So, I mean, they're, they're really alone out there. It's just them and the camera equipment. And I realized that yeah, it, as you watch this, that means that they have to set up the camera in a position maybe further down the trail and they, they then go back and then they walk towards that camera to, to set that all up, to give it the, the feel of, you know, what they're actually doing and experiencing out there. So there's a lot of work on part on the, on behalf of the contestant, but they do it really, really well, I think. Yeah, they do. Um, and just to kind of clarify, you know, listeners may be thinking, well, where are these people dropped off? Like, how are they separate locations? What if they run into each other? And how they are placed strategically around the same, you know, general location, but there are natural barriers such as like cliffs, mountains, um, you know, rivers that aren't passable. So that way that they never really run into each other. Yeah. And I think they're given instructions that they cannot venture beyond a kind of a five square mile radius uh, from where they're dropped. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. And so each player can bring 10 items from a predetermined list of 40 items. So the show kind of puts out, okay, here are the 40 items, pick 10 from this list. And so there's a bit of variability there uh, as each contest contestant looks at that list and picks out the 10 that, that he or she wants to bring. Uh, but other than those 10 items, they have to live off the land. Uh, so just some examples of what people have, have brought out there. You're going to see gill nets to, to help them fish. You're going to see a lot of bows and arrows recently. I think that was a novelty early on, but I think most, I think all, I think nine of the 10 contestants this year uh, have bows and arrows. Uh, you'll see tarps, um, maybe fish hooks, uh, other types of stuff like that. <clears throat> yeah. I think the, the main items that all of them are, bringing I you know something to start fire so we'll get into that but like a what's it called a ferro rod yeah and then um you know maybe flint like you said nine out of ten of them have bow and arrows um and then another one that they're all going to bring is some sort of pot to uh boil water in or cook their food yeah and I think everybody has an axe too that I've seen so far I think I saw one contestant with a machete as well so a lot of different items to pick from and they're all just a little bit different uh in their in their list of ten things that they choose, which kind of makes it interesting see you know what their philosophy is and if that's gonna if that's gonna pan out for them so jukebox, you think you can do that be dropped off in the middle of nowhere uh with your ten items and just live off the land well to kind of give some context for this no, I don't because <laughs> 
if you if you take a look into the the show and the contestants and their backgrounds there's not a lot of uh common ground we both have i don't think i'm as equipped to survive in the wilderness as some of these other characters are for sure yeah yeah i i think i i, I don't think i know i'm in the same boat so you know after after three or four days of going hungry not being able to catch anything i think i think i'd push my button and get called out so <laughs> Now, the show does provide weekly medical checkups on the participants, and each person has a communication device that they can use to contact show personnel in the event that they're injured or requesting to be pulled from the show. And actually, there's been 15 instances of participants being pulled from the show because they have lost too much weight from starvation and, are in, in, and they are in an unsafe physical condition. In fact, there was one contestant, I don't remember his name, I'm not sure which season, I think it was a couple seasons ago, where he was catching fish after fish after fish, and he got paranoid in his mind that he would run out of food at some point. So he rationed himself. Even though he had all this fish, he rationed himself on how much he would eat. So he's eating like, like half of a half of a fish uh, every day, and his weight just kept on dropping and dropping. And then on one of his metal, medical checks, they came in and they said, hey, you have reached a body mass that is now unsafe. We have to pull you out. And he had like 15 pounds of fish behind him when they were telling him this, which was just unbelievable. I, I remember that. And Doc, just, just so our listeners uh, know out there, half of a half of a fish would be a quarter of a fish. So excellent to there's, clarify. There's that UCLA education kicking in. Nice to know that was money well spent. <laughs> All right. And so seasons one, two, and four took place on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. And Vancouver Island is, has the highest density of mountain lions in the world, as viewers were frequently reminded throughout the show's promotion. So there's, they made it seem like there was, there was mountain lions, you know, just around every, every tree. And that's, that's one of the things that makes this show interesting is because there are predators out there. There are large animals. And again, the contestants are, are kind of on their own out there. Yeah, they are. I actually did not know that fact about Vancouver Island. Yeah, so next time you go camping there, just remember that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll go there. So that was for seasons one, two, and four. Season three, the show's participants were dropped off in Patagonia, Argentina. And then season five, featuring uh, former non-winners, I guess that'd be losers from, from prior seasons, uh, that took place in northern Mongolia. So that's the only time they've had repeat uh, contestants come back and, and participate. Uh, season six took place just south of the Arctic Circle in the Northwest Territories of Canada. And this year, the show has set the bar even higher in a couple of respects. For one, it takes place, I believe, above the Arctic Circle this season. And Jukebox, I think you might have a little bit more information about the season, this season's location. Yeah, so I don't know exactly where the Arctic Circle line is drawn, but if you look at the, the opening scenes of the first episode, they kind of give you a zoom in on the map. Um, and if you consider those opening scenes and some of the noticeable geographic features of the area, it seems to me that the contestants on this season are situated around the Great Slave Lake in Alberta, Canada. So I guess based off the show's introduction and description, that is in the Arctic Circle. So I'm assuming it's north of that line. Um, the Great Slave Lake is actually the deepest lake in North America, 614 meters deep and the 10th largest lake in the entire world. So it's 291 miles long and 
12 to 126 miles wide, depending on where you draw that line. Um, oh, that's almost like a small sea, 126 miles wide. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty big lake. Yeah, it does. And you can even tell, like, when they show the contestants around the lake, it does kind of look vast. Like, it is like they're, they're uh, on the shore of an ocean there. It's, mm -hmm. it's just to give you some more stats, it's given volume ranges from 10,000 or 1,070 uh, cubic kilometers to 1,500 cubic kilometers. So, anywhere in that range and up to, um, and even up to, 2,088 kilometers, uh, cubic kilometers, making it the 12th, the 10th to 12th largest lake by volume in the world. Okay. Um, you might be wondering the origins of this lake's name and have no fear. Uh, jukebox is here. The Great Slave Lake was named after the first people's indigenous group, the Slavey, a name derived from slave. Um, and this name was given to them um, by their enemies, the Cree. So the the actual name of these people is the Dene people. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. If our listeners know better than me, please feel free to correct my enunciation. Um, the Dene people are a subgroup of the first people's indigenous group in the northern Boreal and Arctic regions of Canada. Um, I also wanted to kind of look and see how these people survived um, and how they lived because to, you know, just to compare that to how our contestants are going to fare this season. Right, it sounds right. like the Dene people are they hunt moose and it sounds like they kind of, they use the moose, you know, they'll eat it cause it's, it's a lot of meat. It'll last them a while. Um, I'm assuming they use the, you know, the hide for, you know, various other resources, tools, making tools out of the bones or, you know, fishing, I'm sure factors into that somehow. Um, yeah. One of the things we learned from a previous season, I think it was last season. Uh, one of the contestants killed a moose for the very first time in, in the show's history. And he, it seemed like he had, you know, you kill a moose, you're going to have a lot of meat um, to, to help you subsist. And we learned that moose meat actually does not have enough fat. And you need to supplement. If you just lived off of moose meat, you would eventually, I think, uh, enter into an unsafe body mass condition because there's not enough fat in the moose meat, which was uh, shocking to me. Yeah, and we were quickly reminded of that this season, the importance of fat as you saw multiple contestants talking about oh look at all this fish fat i need this this is good you know because you do need that kind of balance um and so in around great slave lake uh the summers are long comfortable and partly cloudy and as you can imagine the winters are frigid snowy and very mostly cloudy <clears throat> over the course of the year the temperature typically varies from one degrees fahrenheit to 72 degrees fahrenheit um and it is rarely below negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit or above 82 degrees Fahrenheit. So those are just some of the parameters for the weather. Uh, that being said, there are some important features of Great Slave Lake in regards to its wildlife for our contestants this season. In regards to the fishing, uh, early fishery researchers have divided the lake into three areas based on distinctive fish populations, a central open area, the long north arm, and the east arm. The dominant fish species here uh, such as lake whitefish, lake trout, and cisco. You know, some of these you've already seen this season uh, yeah, are generally right. found throughout the lake with some variations. Yeah, from what I was, we've already seen some whitefish and some trout being caught in the, in the first couple episodes here. Yeah, and from what I've been reading online, I saw some blogs of people who have actually traveled here and fished. Um, and it's not out of the ordinary to get some trophy fish out there. So, you know, 
if you're looking on at, at episode one or episode two and you're saying, wow, that fish looks pretty big, I, I think it probably is. It's probably pretty big relative to the uh, average fish of that species. Um, Did I just hear you refer to uh, Slave Lake uh, blogs that you are perusing in preparation for this, this podcast? That's really going above and beyond. I mean, you're going the extra mile for our listeners here. It is summertime and I do have a, in excess of, of time, you know, with the whole shelter in place order and I'm not currently in class right now. So yeah, I was reading some uh, Fisher blogs. <laughs> uh, lake trout and graylings are the most abundant in the east and north arms. Just a little more details on the fish. Um, and in general, this lake begins to freeze over in late November and the ice remains until mid to late May. Uh, by right. mid-June, the by mid-June, the water is open, and midsummer is the calmest time on the lake. Yeah, looking uh, at some of the promos for, for this season, they must be there well past November because uh, I see some poor soul sitting, on, sitting at the lake trying to chop, chop a hole in the ice to continue his fishing activities. He's, he's sitting there with, a, with an axe trying to get through the, the ice that's formed overnight. Yeah, and, you know, we may – we may also see some stormy weather because past the fall, the stormy weather becomes more common, uh, often blowing in with little warning. So that could be uh, something to pay attention to while watching. Um, and so let's, let's take a, a step aside from the fish and we'll head into some of the mammals around this lake. Um, fun fact here, on the west side of the Great Slave Lake lies the Mackenzie Bison Sanctuary, containing the world's largest wildwood bison herd. Now, if you're not familiar with the wood bison, the wood bison are taller, heavier, and longer-legged than plains bison. Um, wow, wouldn't I'd, want one of them wandering through my camp. No, definitely not. Uh, and in addition to the wood bison, this lake is also home to a variety of other mammals, such as black bears, caribou, musk ox, wolves, wolverines, lynxes, and, of course, the bald eagle. So I'm going to ask you, are all, all of those fair game for our contestants? I have a feeling you're going to tell me that uh, those are not all fair game. I, I do not think it's legal to hunt bald eagles. You're correct. Um, I think that's a, a rule of thumb that everyone knows for the most part. As far as, you know, you know, great question, Doc. It's a good segue into this next note here. So if you watch the first episode of the season – all participants must comply with the North, Northwest Territory hunting and fishing rules and restrictions. Um, so I have some of these prominent rules listed that will probably play into our contestants' experience more, kind of give you an idea of what they have to keep track of. So um, no one may chase, harass, or molest wildlife. Well, that's going to happen. So some wildlife is going to get harassed, and I think even, even killed, but uh, I'm sure that some of those are off limits, like, I think the bison are probably off limits. Uh, I think uh, the bald eagle, like you said, as well. But they have to live off the land, so they're going to be molesting some wildlife at some point. Right. I'm sure that the alone producers and uh, show staff have been in contact with, you know, the park rangers and the, the game wardens to kind of make sure they know what's going on. I'm sure they're in constant communication. Got the appropriate uh, permits for the show. Right. And number two uh, – it is an offense to waste, destroy, abandon, or allow to spoil the following edible parts uh, of an animal. I don't think that's going to be a problem for our contestants. I think they're going to get as much use out of their animals as, as they can. Um, number three, no one shall hunt wildlife with a device that is in unsafe condition, 
discharge a firearm from along or across a public road or without due regard for the safety of other people and property. Um, and when harvesting wildlife, no person can have poison, explosives, or explosive projectiles, tracer ammunition, set guns, or automatic weapons. So I'm pretty sure um, then that those were not on the list of, of 40 items that they could pick from. No, no firearms or poison or explosives. Yeah, I don't think so. But rule number four here is important for our contestants because bow hunting is permitted in these territories mm -hmm. and is subject to the same regulations as hunting with a firearm. So everything... You know, I said before about, you know, discharging a firearm across a public road or around other people or property, that is also going to be illegal with a bow. Um, and not that our contestants have done this, but I would imagine that poisoning the tips of your arrows is probably illegal as well. Yeah. Uh, number five in the Northwest Territories, it is legal to shoot a bear in self-defense when life or property is threatened. So... If any of our viewers find themselves, or not our viewers, if any of our contestants, I guess it could be our viewers if you're yeah, in the Northwest you're, Territory. That's right. Uh, but if any of our contestants find themselves maybe backed up against a tree or, you know, bears are pretty fast and you don't think you can outrun them to get to safety, it is legal to shoot a bear in self-defense, regardless of existing restrictions. Uh, number six, there are some daily catch limits on species of fish in Great Slave Lake. I think this pertains more to commercial fishing and making sure the fish are not exploited. I don't think any of our contestants are going to run into problems with the daily catch limits. Uh, yeah, I think you're right there. And, and number seven, these are just some recommendations from the hunting and fishing guide I was reading. Uh, if you are fishing alone on the shoreline, keep your fish on a stringer and closely attended. Obviously there are predators that do eat fish that are, are likely to steal your food if you're not around. Uh, Another thing, it's important to locate the food storage and cooking area separate from the sleeping area. So clothes that may contain fish or cooking odors should not be brought into your tent, rather store them in the food or cooking area. So as you watch this, you're going to see people say, I don't want to cut up this fish by my camp because I don't want these guts or this blood here. You know, the predators are going to smell that. Um, so this is kind of the, the method behind the madness here. And then the last recommendation I have is to never assume uniform ice thickness on the lake. So I, I'm, I imagine that our contestants this season are going to be, you know, prepared or somewhat experienced in, you know, ice, ice fishing. You know, mm -hmm. I can't imagine a novice goes out there and says, oh, I'm going to cut a hole in the ice and start fishing here unless they've done it before. But I could be wrong. Um, but that doesn't seem like a sustainable way of living on this show for 100 days. So that's, that's all I've got. Uh, not all I've got. I feel like that was a fairly substantial amount of information, but that's what I have about the terrain for this that season. That was substantial. That was very thorough. That was a, a thorough report on, on uh, the Great Slave Lake and what the contestants can expect to uh, encounter. So good work there. Uh, the other way the show producers have taken it up another notch is that they're offering a $1 million prize to the person who can stay out for 100 days. I believe in the past... Uh, it was not a million dollar prize. It was either 500,000. I think it was 500,000. And it, there wasn't a day limit. You could, it, it's basically whoever, it was whoever could stay out there the longest. And because you were completely alone, you never knew if a health check was just a regular health check or if they were coming to tell you, hey, you're the last one. Congratulations, you won. So now they've they kind of upped the ante with a million dollars and they have uh, set a, a goal or a target date of 100 days. 
And to give you an idea of how daunting this task is, let me share how many days each season's winner stayed out there in previous seasons. So in season one, Alan Kay won in 56 days. Season two, David McIntyre won in 66 days. Season three, Zachary Fowler won in 87 days. Season four, which was a pair format, there was, there was actually two people uh, in each camp. Uh, the Baird brothers won in 75 days. Season five, Sam Larson won in 60 days. And season six, last season, Jordan Jonas won in 77 days. So Zachary Fowler came close in season three with 87 days, but no one has done over, no one has done 100 days on the show before. So some interesting uh, alterations to the, to the show's format that they've done this year to kind of just ramp things up a little bit in a show that already I think is, is pretty nuts. I mean, that, there's nothing else out there like this uh, where you just drop people off in the middle of nowhere with their, their own cameras and they're on their own other than the, the weekly medical checks and the, the bailout button device that they have. So jukebox, anything else on the history format or prior seasons we need to discuss before we get into episode one? Yeah. So not that he needs uh, my recognition or name drop in this podcast, but on the Joe Rogan experience, Jordan Jonas was recently a guest on that oh. podcast. Okay. And so this will kind of factor in to our contestants this season, kind of based off who we think is going to do well. Um, and Jordan made a good point saying that, you know, your background does mean a lot to this show. For example, he was a nomadic traveler. So he traveled all over the world constantly, was never in one place, uh, never had a home, anything like that. So he said that that was really conducive and almost made it unfair for his kind of survival methods and techniques on the show because that's just what he does. He just survives for a living, basically. Um, and then some other important details, I think, to mention would be... Before you get to those details, you just gave me an idea. Uh, you know, I have the, the names here of the winners. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to track these folks down on you know, Twitter or Instagram, and uh, I'll send messages out to them, see if we can get them as a guest on the show here. I mean, we are the companion podcast to uh, the history channels show alone. So I, I don't see how they could turn us down. Yeah. If your search was diligent and all encompassing, then you would be correct. So uh, <laughs> another couple of details to go over before we start with episode one would be, I saw that they, each contestant has approximately five square miles to reside in. I'm sure they're made aware of that. Like, like we talked about earlier, um, the approved list of 10 items um there has never been a female winner of a loan um and i think that there's a strong possibility that that uh that that statement will not be true after this season because i do like uh one of the female contestants on on this season very oh, much wow. hey hey don't give it away yet we're gonna go yeah. over power rankings later i won't give it away yet but i like okay. her tactics i like her attitude so i think she's gonna do well uh two other things there's a Danish spinoff of Alone called Alone in the Wilderness, where contestants choose 12 items off a list of 18. Hey, that's my people. Um, that's, our, that's our people, the Danish, you know, over there in Denmark. It's a little bit tougher over there. 12 items off of, well, it's 12 items. That's more than 10. But the, the list is 18 instead of 40. Right. So I guess it's uh, maybe less creativity on that show and, you know, more just designated survival. See who does kind of equal the playing field, you know. Uh, there's also a Norwegian spinoff of the show, and there's also a show called Alone the Beast, 
which is 30 days in the Arctic with an animal carcass. And I think animal carcass, uh, I think they, they either give them like the supplies that is representative of like a thousand pound moose carcass, or it's just a, a moose carcass for them. I, I find it hard to believe that uh, they would kill a moose and just give it to them. So I, I don't really know the specifics of that, but it's strictly 30 days in the Arctic to see who survives. That sounds intriguing. Where, where would I find this show, Alone the Beast? I don't know. I'll have to do some more research, and maybe we can send that out after this episode is uploaded. Okay. Well, hey, stay tuned. When we come back from the break, we're going to get into episode one details and uh, kind of review you know, what took place in season seven, episode one. That's coming up after the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Hey, Jukebox, I understand you have an update on Alone the Beast, on where we can watch that. Yeah, so you can also find Alone the Beast on the History Channel. So same home as our regular Alone show. All right, I'm going to have to set up a recording for that. Check it out. All right, we're now venturing into the territory of spoilers. So if you have not watched the first episode yet, pause and go do so. going to wait just for a second here. Are they gone? Okay. I think it's just us and the folks who are up to date on the episodes at this point. So uh, in the first episode, we see four contestants for the first 10 days, which is different, a different format than previous seasons. I think we've kind of seen all of the contestants during the first episode in previous seasons, and they've kind of done it, done it a little bit differently this year. We only see four contestants throughout the, the entirety of the first episode. So there's 10 contestants, but we only see four of them. Um, so I'm going to get to... Um, one of the contestants, his name is Joe Nicholas. He is 31 years old, and he's from Redding, California. Go, California. Uh, some, of his, his, some information about his background. He is a biologist with the National Park Service, and he is uh, adept at building with unfamiliar materials, so kind of a, a MacGyver-type personality. If, if you give him some things to, and say, hey, make this work, he, he can make it work. Uh, also takes uh, extreme trips and does backpacking in the snow. Some of those scenes of him out there uh, doing his backpacking were pretty pretty daunting, it looked like. So he looks like he's ready for this. And he really knows the native plants, which is going to be important out there because eventually as you, as you get deeper and deeper into the winter, uh, you're gonna, the game is going gonna, is gonna to disappear. Fishing is not going to be an option. Game is going to disappear. You're going to have to try and find some other stuff to eat. So he knows the native plants out there. Um, just in this first episode, we see him with uh, a tarp, and actually, that's the only item I saw him with. Maybe with maybe an axe, but uh, I, I saw the tarp for sure. And really, the the episode starts with him kind of uh, when the episode focuses on him. He's, he's he's folding his tarp, and as he's folding his tarp, he he finds some floss on the ground. Contestants are allowed to use whatever they find out there as well. He found some, found some floss, and it was really unusual because he, he said, oh, it's floss. He actually tried it out and was uh, you know, flossing his teeth with it, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting. Not, not necessarily a decision I would make to use found floss. 
but uh, came to the, came to the decision that, that the floss was in too bad a condition to use for anything else, and so he kind of kind of threw it away. But I think the impressive thing about Joe is that he he does not have a bow. He's the the one contestant this year without a bow. You remember that jukebox? Yep, no bow. And so I'm wondering, you know, how is he gonna how's he gonna catch food? And that that question was was put to rest pretty quickly because right off the bat he sees a squirrel up in a tree he grabs a rock and throws a rock at the squirrel he, he has a couple of attempts that are unsuccessful but on his third throw he hits the squirrel i mean how how impressive is that i i could not believe that when i saw it i said there's no way he's gonna have enough velocity and accuracy on this rock throw to actually kill the squirrel and it dropped dead out of the tree so yep day one Dude. squirrel with a rock Kudos to him. That's a tryout for a major league team out there somewhere. That's right. Pretty impressive. And then they show him a little bit later uh, taking a morning dip in, in a lake. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the Great Slave Lake or if it's another small lake next to it, but he, he takes a dip into the lake, and they show that it's 38 degrees. Yeah, that's cold. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll dip my toe in the, in the pool at home, and it's, you know, 67 degrees or – something around there and it's still way too cold for me so i can't imagine 38 degree lake water 38 degrees and that's one of the cool features of this show is that as you're watching the video that the contestants are shooting of themselves uh, they also put up graphics throughout the show that kind of give you different pieces of information about what they're doing or about the uh the uh the environment they're they're living in and so as he's as he's stripping down and and climbing into the water, the graphic shows up that it's it's 38 degrees. So I think it's a pretty cool feature of the show. There, you're you're constantly informed not only by by the the video that they're taking of themselves, but the show's producers are, are putting in some pretty good graphics with information in there about you know what's going on, so you have a, a better understanding. Definitely, definitely. And so he he uh, as I said, he's a, a biologist with the National Park Service. So he immediately goes out uh, foraging for berries and mushrooms. He finds uh, various things, including like juniper berries and and a really unusual looking uh, coral fungus, which I, I guess that's edible. He he ate it. He he, he must know. So yeah, they coral, they, coral I, fungus on your on your diet there, jukebox. I don't know if I will. I'll just have to take his word for it. But I was going to say that's an interesting approach that I am really excited to see play out with Joe is that everyone else seems to be a hunter and they have a bow and they're ready to catch food that way, you know. Um, but Joe, I feel not that our other contestants aren't having like a knowledge based approach to the survival, but I really feel like Joe's background, you know, being a biologist for the Park Service, I feel like he really understands the ecosystem and kind of where he can fit into that, you know, what food's available to him, how to avoid dangerous interactions and kind of how to maybe play it smart out there. Obviously we're still very early. So, you know, maybe I could be wrong, but like I said, I'm excited to see how it plays out. Yeah. And I'm, we kind of mentioned it before about the, at the end of this episode, the end of this episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about power rankings. And I know you have your power rankings of the contestants we've seen so far. And I have my power rankings. I'm interested to see how, how we compare and where, where Joe fits on your power ranking. Don't, don't give it up now, but we'll, uh, we'll talk about that. I won't. And one of the things that we're doing here is we're kind of taking the entirety of uh, each contestant's experiences on the episode and talking about them at one time. 
if you're watching the show, as you know, they kind of jump around from character to character and they keep coming back and back and forth. So we're, we're actually just going through the, the entirety of Joe's experience here in episode number one. So after the, the whole uh, foraging for berries and mushrooms and stuff, he actually sees some tracks and he realizes that there is a bear uh, in the vicinity and he actually sees the bear kind of in the, in the I'm going to say in the distance, but I don't think it was that far away. Maybe a hundred, couple hundred yards away. He could, he could see it. And we actually see uh, on the camera, there's some video. He, he, you can see some movement back there. And so he actually sees the bear. Uh, Jukebox, what do you do on the trail when you see a bear? I don't know. I mean, I, I've only seen a little tiny cub running on a trail once in my life before. And so I was kind of worried, but I was also around a lot of people. So um, I would imagine if you see a bear, get your bear horn out, maybe your bear spray. Uh, one thing I would do is probably not try to confront the bear. Obviously, maybe Joe knows better than I do. Um, but I can kind of see how the, you know, the visual and audio connection or between like himself and the bear, kind of that connection as in maybe he wants to present himself as a, a dangerous thing. So the bear stays away. I could see how that makes sense. Um, yeah. So Joe, that's exactly what he does. He says, you know what? There's a bear in my area where I'm, where I'm setting up for the next hundred days and I don't want there to be a bear in my area. So I'm going to go follow this bear and I'm going to try and confront the bear and make myself loud and noisy and kind of tell the bear, this is my area and not your area. So he actually goes on the offensive and tries to intercept the bear and confront the bear, which I thought was just, you know, that's completely foreign to me. I, I would not be looking for a bear, but uh, it makes sense. I mean, he's going to be out there for an extended period of time in this same location. You don't necessarily want to be competing with other predators out there for food, as well as, you know, what, what kind of hazard that could be if they're, they're wandering into your camp. Yeah, at first I said, that takes a lot of guts to uh, do something like that. Uh, but then I also realized that at the beginning of Joe's, you know, introduction on the show, it also shows him having a picnic up very up high on what seems to be a redwood tree. I don't know if you remember that picture. Oh, but yes. Yeah, I did see that. Do you remember that? So Joe's kind of fearless. Uh, so we'll see how that, that attitude works for him. Yeah, so fortunately or unfortunately for the viewers, there, there was no confrontation with the bear. The bear kind of uh, slips off without uh, uh, being intercepted by Joe. And then we kind of fast forward to, uh, I don't know if it's the next morning or morning. They kind of cover days one through 10 in this first episode. So I'm not sure where in, the, in, the, in that time period we are but he gets up and he get he goes to check on the snares so evidently one of his items was, was also uh, wire to make snares and he gets up to go check the snares that he set and he not he not only finds one rabbit he finds two rabbits so that's uh that's that's bodes well for for joe he's gonna be eating okay for a while and to give you any, any idea of how cold the nights are there when he picks those rabbits up off of the, the snares, they look like they're frozen solid. So it's, it's already pretty cold there. Yeah. That, I was also wondering if that was like a, a posthumous thing that happens to rabbits or if that was, if they were frozen solid from the cold, it's probably frozen solid from the cold. I think so. Yeah. So that was Joe's experience on, on the first episode. You want to take us into uh, the next contestant? Yeah, so our next contestant, the first female presented on the show, Keelan Marone or Maroney. I'm not, I'm not sure the pronunciation of that last name. 
Um, she is 33 years old from Espanola, Ontario. Uh, a couple background facts about our contestant, Keelan. Uh, she's a wilderness snowshoe guide. Now, that may sound kind of ambiguous or you're thinking, okay, so she's a guide in the snow. But if you saw the videos presented in episode one, she does some serious treks in the snow. I mean, dragging equipment during blizzards, you know. I don't know who are, who are the people volunteering to go on these tours, but it, they look pretty intense. Um, yeah, they're not only volunteering, they're paying to go on these tours, I think. Right. There's remote wilderness adventures. Um, she makes gill nets. Is that correct, Doc? Yeah, they showed her making a gill net that is it's kind of her backstory back at where she, where she lives. Uh, they showed her out in the yard uh, making a gill net, which is, you know, comes, those gill nets come in pretty handy um, here uh, on the show. And in fact, if you don't select a gill net, so if you pick your 10 items out of the 40 and, and, and gill net is not one of those 10, but you have those skills, that means if you were to find some, some line out there, fishing line or other kinds of rope, you could make your own gill net, which is advantageous. Yeah, and so that's a good segue into our items here. Uh, some of the items that were noticed in the first episode is she brought a bow. As we said, most of the contestants except for Joe brought a bow. Uh, she did bring a gill net. I'm, I'm assuming it's a, it's a sturdy, reliable gill net that she made. Uh, in preparation for the show, she brought an axe and a pair of gaiters. Uh, yeah, and she turns those gaiters. It's interesting. She, turns, she sews those gaiters together and uses them as part of her uh, door to her shelter which I thought was pretty, pretty handy. Yeah. And so with Keelan, you know, she kind of makes it clear to the viewers uh, that if she is not actively hunting or fishing, she wants to be passively hunting or fishing. So the first thing she does is she's setting a bunch of snares to trap animals, you know, small rodents. Um, after setting those snares, we also saw her uh, a very impressive snot rocket um i it was one of the larger snot rockets i've seen definitely the only one i've seen on a tv show yeah uh, right there right there in front of the camera close up uh she said hey watch this and just blew out a big one there wow that's why you know she she could be making an appearance high on my power rankings and won't give anything away uh, the snot <laughs> rocket may have had something to do with that uh she also did uh chew on some spruce sap she said i may regret this but i'm gonna do it and she did uh she did chew it or she did regret it maybe both yeah i think so um, i think she said this tastes terrible yeah if i remember her face after chewing it was not uh, not a pleasant one not something you would have after a good meal um she her goal with these snares is uh she wants to set seven per day um she eventually does get a small rabbit in the snare, but it's, it's still alive. And so she did have to kill it. She did get sort of emotional. Um, she blamed herself. You know, the noose was two weeks. She says she was sobbing. And, you know, I think it'd be wrong for, for some of the viewers to judge that emotional side of her because I don't think any of us have really been in that position before. We've had to look in the eye of the animal that you're about to eat or kill. Um, she actually says that it's, it's, it's pretty profound. You know, most of us go to the supermarket and pick out our food. It's very few of us out there that actually have to have to deal with that kind of situation. And I, you know, I think one of the, one of the consistent things, not just in this season of alone, but in, in all across all seasons is that the contestants are really, the participants are really, um, 
kind of thankful and grateful and uh, kind of honor the animals they kill. They know that, you know, they're taking their life, but they really thank them for helping uh, to sustain them. So that's, that's pretty profound, I think. Yeah. And uh, to move past that snare, she, uh, they transitioned to a scene of her building her shelter. And so her approach to the shelter was a seven pole pitch prospector tent. So if you're curious what that is, you know, go on Google, type that in. I'm sure you'll get a good picture. So to make this tent, she had logs, tarp, mud, and in between her logs of the wall of her shelter, she was putting vegetation. So like moss, small leaves, bushes, um, to prevent the cold from coming in. So it's kind of an insulation tactic. And I believe it's called chinking, chinking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was brought to our attention in episode two, but, uh, so a couple, couple of the same of contestants using that same tactic to, to insulate their shelter. Um, and like you said, on day seven, she uses the gators as her door to the shelter. Uh, the shelter looks pretty good after she finishes it. Um, yeah, I thought it was pretty impressive. Know? Yeah. And, and kind of her journey so far on the show kind of comes to a conclusion, you know, inside the shelter, she got a fire going, talks about her doubt prior to leaving home. Um, but now that she's out there, she feels pretty confident. So, yeah, I think that's probably pretty common that folks leading up to it. I mean, thinking about something is, is normally the worst part about it, kind of dreading or anticipating what may or may not happen. But I think once you're in the middle of things, when you're out there just, you know, doing your thing and, and trying to survive, you're so engrossed with the daily activities and the minute by minute, what you have to do out there that, you know, kind of that, that doubt and fear uh, leaves you while you're, you're focused just on surviving. So, yeah. All right. Hey, so the next contestant uh, is Roland, Roland Welker, and he is 47 years old, which makes him the oldest contestant this year. And he is from Red Devil, Alaska. So I think if you're from a town called Red Devil, I mean, you're already, you know, high up in the power rankings. We'll have to, we'll have to see how, where he ends up. But um, he says that he's been living off the land most of his life, and he is a registered big game guide. So he's used to those big animals out there. And he also uh, takes part and leads extreme wilderness trips. Uh, they show some uh, footage of him lifting weights. And when he gets bored, he's out there uh, logging. And he refers to himself as the big bull of the North Woods. So he's kind of building himself up. We'll, see how, we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, the only item I really saw uh, just noticeable was that he also brought a tarp. And the opening scene with him is he's got a fire going and he notices a, a birch log that's burning and coming out of the birch log, trying to escape the fire are a bunch of ants. So he, he grabs that birch log and pulls it out of the fire and he begins to eat the ants one by one, which, uh, you know, you know, day one, he's eating ants. I, I didn't, didn't know we we're going to go there that quickly. Usually that's a starvation uh, tactic, but he's not afraid to, you know, find any resource out there and take advantage of it. Yeah. I think once again, just kind of a, a bit of a flex on day one, eating the ants. They did, they did look pretty, uh, hardy if an ant was to be considered hardy. So maybe it was a good source of uh, nutrients. Yeah. In fact, one of my favorite quotes was, you know, that one grabbed a hold of my tongue. He says, as he's trying to chew one down. 
He says, you got to bite the head off first. Otherwise they grab onto your tongue. So good, good, yeah. uh, good pro tip there. Yeah, definitely. I would definitely, uh, go straight to just chewing and not maybe so much of putting them on my tongue. Yeah. He also shows that he's, he, like I said, he is a, a big game guide registered big game guide. And so he's immediately walking down the beach and he's looking for tracks and trying to evaluate the age of those tracks and what's in his vicinity and what's not. So it sounds like he's pretty comfortable in that regard. And he actually finds some fishing line that he says he's going to use that uh, along the way. And then he comes face to face with a Wolverine as he's walking the perimeter of the lake and the Wolverine and him kind of lock eyes for a second. And the Wolverine uh, turns around and, and bolts off away from him. And if you know about anything about wolverines, they are some mean, vicious animals. Yeah, apparently they can take down prey or animals five times the size of them. So, yeah, they not are, to be not to be underestimated. They are vicious. I think they go from anywhere from forty to sixty pounds, and and uh, we've seen them in previous seasons. I think I think last season, one of our contestants killed one and ate one. But you know, going head-to-head with a, in that particular season, in that episode, it was like early morning hours or in the middle of the night, I remember. He's out there in the dark with a flashlight and a spear going after a a wolverine, and he comes out on top, which was just bonkers. Now, I'm talking about a previous season, not Roland. This is a previous season where a contestant took on a wolverine. That was just crazy. Now, Roland was not featured too much in this particular episode. Of, of, of the four contestants that they kind of shadowed and showed, uh, he had the, less, the, the least amount of screen time, but he also makes an appearance in episode two. He is the, the lone person, the lone contestant to be featured in both episode one and episode two of, of uh, uh, this season so far. All right, so we've talked about three of the contestants. Jukebox, why don't you take us to uh, contestant number four for the episode? So contestant number four, um, and actually the first contestant shown, uh, we just saved him for last because he does, spoiler alert, he does end up tapping out. Um, So Sean Helton, he's 43 years old from Henry, Tennessee. Uh, some of some background information, he does bushcraft videos and he sells supplies. He's a super fan of the alone show. Um, he designs his own traps. Some of the items he brought with him, a bow, an ax, a ferro rod. What's, a ferro, what's a ferro rod? So a ferro rod is a fire steel rod, you know, made out of a couple different metals that, you know, you can spark up fires with easily. Um, to get into some of the events of what he went through this first episode, um, he had to find the camera equipment. Uh, the camera box looked like it was kind of, uh, approached with some curiosity from a bear. Um, he moves his location to try and avoid the bear. Yeah. So uh, the contestants, the contestants are dropped off by helicopter into their <laughs> area. And the night before that they are dropped off, there's also a, a box of camera equipment that they're going to use. They've been trained on it. They're going to use this camera equipment and it's been sitting there overnight waiting for them. And he actually, you know, goes looking for his camera box, finds it. And there's obvious claw marks and teeth marks on the camera box, which he took to mean that there was a, a bear in the area, a uh, curious bear trying to figure out what was inside that box. Yeah. Um, it was a pretty prominent claw mark too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so immediately what Sean does, he goes out and he kills a porcupine, 
with his bow. It looks to be a very promising start for Sean. Uh, yeah. It's uh, he has a porcupine barbecue on that first day, I believe. Uh, although it was difficult to start a fire because there's a lot of moss around this area, and the moss holds in moisture, so everything is wet. But he finally does get it started. Uh, he cooks it overnight. He eats it for breakfast. Uh, takes the pot down to the shoreline, as you can imagine. Um, you know, kind of want to dispose of the food and the guts and away from your camp, as we, we saw in those hunting and, hunting and uh, game recommendations. Uh, he wakes up to hear his pot clanking, a bear. Uh, sounded like a bear growl. If I, I'm not very well versed in bear growls, but it definitely sounded like a bear and not a wolverine. Um, he actually goes out and looks for the bear with his bow. He hears it, but he can't see it. It was dark, though, correct? It oh. was, yeah. It was. I think he was laying down. He was laying down in his tent. And as you know from our hikes, jukebox, you know, after a full day, uh, when the sun goes down, you're not staying up till nine o'clock, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock at night. You know, when the sun starts to go down, you get into your tent and kind of take it easy and either reflect on the day or start to go to sleep. I think it was like eight o'clock at night. He had kind of drifted off to sleep, and he heard this clanking noise and he knew that something was messing with his with his pant with his pot that he had set uh kind of far far down away from his camp and sure enough it looked like there was a bear messing with it <clears throat> yeah um each contestant is also given a bear horn and bear spray um just a disclaimer for you watching he's uh highly motivated by his family to stay until the end uh unfortunately we know he does not do that and we'll kind of get to that right now. On day 10, he's building the shelter. You know, he's doing fake promos for Alone. They were fairly entertaining as well. Yeah, I wouldn't be funny. surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if Alone maybe used some of those for promotions in the future. Yeah, they're um, good. He goes out looking for food pretty early on day 10. Uh, he works on the shelter later. He's actually kind of moseying around the camp and uh, his location, and he finds a boat. Uh, flipped upside down and it's kind of hidden underneath some branches and shrubs um, but what he does with this boat he ends up digging it out and flipping it over and making a hot tub out of it so a it's a metal tub. boat yeah a metal boat um, kind of at an angle so that the back of the boat is where he's gonna sit that's where he pools the water in you know he goes makes a several trips down to the to the lake brings water back pours it on that side of the boat luckily there wasn't a hole that he had to patch up uh, he started a fire underneath the back of the boat and it looked like a pretty well functioning hot tub from hot tub from what I could, from what I could tell. Uh, so the current temp at that time was 39 degrees. As you can imagine, a hot tub, pretty nice in that weather. He was actually down to his chonies, down to his underwear. That was all he was wearing. He put some shrubs on him as well. Kind of the, I don't know what that strategy was, was yeah. it to hold in the heat or so I thought this was like you said earlier with, with Roland, you know, the flex, I, I think that uh, with him eating the ants, Roland eating the ants, that was a flex early on. I think this was a flex by Sean. He, you know, you don't need to sit in a hot, in a hot tub, right? You don't need to make a hot tub out there, but uh, he made a hot tub and he took off all his clothes up for his, his undies and uh, sat in there with his fur hat on and just enjoyed the, the hot water. I think he was, he was clownered up a little bit for, for the, the show and just kind of flexing look look here i am out here in the middle of nowhere we're supposed to be the harshest of harshest of conditions and i'm in a, i've made a hot tub that's a, that's that's the kind of guy i am yeah i don't it ends up coming and nip him in the butt because he returns to his camp after this 
hot tub excursion and he realizes that he's missing the ferro rod. So his fire maker. Um, now, Doc, I don't know how well versed you are with, you know, ancient civilizations and, you know, the different ages, the stone age, the middle age, you know, all of that, but I'm pretty oh, I'm, sure. I'm very, I'm very familiar with middle age. <laughs> Funny. I'm very, sh- I'm uh, fairly sure that when humans discovered fire, it was a major, you know, technological development uh, as Dang far you. as, as survival goes. So I think being out there without a surefire way to make fire, um, you're going to be in some trouble, especially with how low of temperature this can get to. You can't cook. You can't keep the predators away. Uh, you can't have clean water. Um, I'm sure he might have been able to fashion some type of water filtration system, but you know the fire's a pretty sure way to make sure there's no bacteria in there when it comes time to quench your thirst. And so that being said, he eventually does tap out. It was pretty emotional tap out. And you could tell he was, you know, I did think he had a good promising start to the show. Yeah, I wonder if he kind of uh, realized that he did an unnecessary flex. And because of that, I mean, the last place, obviously, he had the ferrule rod was at the boat making the fire for the hot tub. And he gets back to camp and realizes he doesn't have it. He kind of goes back um, looking for it. But, you know, something that small amidst all the the litter, the, the leaves and the branches and everything else that are on the ground, he, he was unable to find it. So I wonder if he, if he, if he kind of felt like, okay, I, I flexed here for the show, for the viewers, uh, show, you know, just a little extra here. And he came back and bit me. Yeah, it seems like it, you know. I enjoyed the little hot tub segment, so I'm not going to hold it against him too much. Uh, <laughs> but that is a bummer. Yeah. If you have the opportunity to flex, do you flex? Of course. Yes. Uh, you know, at least I don't think anyone's going to forget the guy who had a hot tub on a loan, you know? Right. So Good point. Good point. All right. Hey, we're, we're to the, the end of – we've talked about all four contestants. Now we're going to bring up some, some regular features that we're going we're gonna to have on the, on the podcast here. I want to see – you know. The, the contestants have a, a tendency to say some pretty interesting things during the course of an episode. So our first segment here, regular segment is going to be the top three quotes of the episode. I'm interested to hear what jukebox has to have, has to say what his top three quotes are. Um, I will share my top three quotes. So um, first one comes from Sean who, who taps out, but I think he said something very profound. He said, everything out here, wants to take your food. And so it's not just a matter of, you know, acquiring your food, it's hanging on to your food because you can't just leave it uh, outside unprotected and expect it to be there the next morning because there are things out there that uh, are hungry and are, are competing for the same, the same game. And so that, that was pretty accurate. Everything out here wants to take your food. Do you have one, Andrew? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, so these aren't from our contestants from the first episode, but in the, the season opener of Alone, you know, they do show you multiple contestants, you know. So my first quote actually comes from Amos, um, who we'll talk about for episode two. Mm-hmm. Um, but his quote was, this is the Olympics of the survival community. Um, and I kind of like that because I feel like not a lot of survivalists get a chance to to like we've said flex uh a lot and kind of show their worth but i think that that was a good 
depiction of what this show is all about. Yeah, very good. Uh, my next quote comes from Joe. Uh, he who chased the bear and when he kind of talked about why he was chasing the bear and wanted to confront the bear, he said, I want him to have the idea that I equal loud, scary noises. So he was trying to drive that bear out and, and claim his character for his own. So I, I thought that was pretty good too. Yeah, definitely a good quote. Um, my second favorite, my second of my top three favorite quotes from the episode comes as no surprise from our, beloved contestant Roland Welker I'm the big bull of the Northwoods I think that's too good to leave out that was definitely a a phrase that you know alone should consider using for a promo in the future as well nice nice my third and final quote from this episode comes from you you pronounce it Keelan I don't know if it's Kylan or Keelan uh, she said before she she grabbed some of that spruce sap and put it in her mouth she says I may regret this but I'm gonna do it I think that uh sums up a lot of, of situations in my life. You know, I may regret this, but I'm going to do it. So that kind of struck a chord with me. Yeah. And um, my third quote is also from a contestant on episode two, but like I said, it was in the introduction to the show. Um, and this comes from Mark and Mark said, last chance to change my mind. Um, I'm sure they were all thinking about that before, you know, being placed and they're uh, five square miles to survive in. So I like that quote a lot. Nice. All right. Next comes our, our, uh, another regular segment that we're going to have on this podcast, and that's thriving. Who's thriving out there? Do you want to go first or you want me to go first? You know, of these four contestants, who's doing the best out there? Okay. So I can, I'll start. Okay. Um, you know, I really do think that. Um, Joe is thriving. I think, I think he's getting familiar with his surroundings. Uh, I, you know, I think he's very knowledgeable about the area and kind of how to survive. Like I said, I like his knowledge based approach to this survival here. Um, he's not a hunter. And I think that that may be make him a dark horse in this competition. Um, he's already, he's already got two rabbits in his snare. So he seems to be uh, productive in that respect. He also says, I'm going to continue to use what's working. And so I think that that's going to show some consistency. I think we're going to see him kind of consistently, you know, staying at that threshold of survival. So that's what I'd say is thriving right now. All right. And so you, you have happened upon the person that I also picked for thriving. I said, hey, this guy, he killed a squirrel by throwing a rock. He's caught two rabbits. And he went to go chase a bear out of his area. So, I mean, those three things combined, he's got to be the, the number one person in my book for, for episode one. Yeah, definitely. I also, not to slight Keelan, um, I also think she's doing very well. Um, from what I could tell in her background information, she, uh, she's been through some brutal elements. And I think when, it, when you're talking about the Arctic Circle, your first fear is, okay, this weather is going to be cold. There's going to be ice. There's going to be snow. And I don't think she's worried about that at all. I think that she's been through that, been there, done that. Uh, her attitude about it is great. Um, I think that, you know, she's coming from a house where she lives with her husband, I believe. Um, and that's about it. And so I'd say that, you know, she probably has the best kind of support system. You know, she's got that one, that one family member back home who's motivating her. And it doesn't seem like she has a problem being out there. So okay. I think she's also thriving. 
All right. Who is, who's surviving barely? Who's barely surviving out there? I, th- I know for a fact that you and I are going to differ on this point. So go ahead. Who do you have? Uh, well, obviously, Sean, he, he did not do so well. Um, but I'm kind of concerned a little bit about Roland. Um, I, something about his bravado, I don't know if it necessarily rubs me the wrong way or if it just raises a, a red flag for concern. You know, I don't want him to get too cocky or, you know, let his confidence get in the way of, you know, consistent survival techniques and strategies. And I don't want to get too much into episode two, but, uh, you know, there is some stuff he does that concerns me as far as like the effort he's exerting right away without getting much return. Um, so those are just some things that, you know, maybe were a little alarming for me on the surface here, not to say that I think Roland's doing poorly. I think he's doing well, but if you were to kind of ask me, who do I think is maybe in the most trouble at this current moment, I'd say Roland. Wow. You surprised me because from your earlier comments, I thought you're a a Roland fan fan and you, and you probably are, but uh, that's also who I picked for struggling. I said, I know Sean tapped out, but you know, episode one, Roland is eating ants already. Uh, he runs into a Wolverine and seems surprised about it. So that kind of seemed startling that, you know, they came, he came face to face with a, a predator and wasn't ready for it. Uh, luckily, the Wolverine ran away. And then I also I thought that his line, you know, I'm the big bull of the North Woods. So it's entertaining. I think it's setting him up for some karma. So I hope that doesn't happen. But uh, and, and you know what? Episode two, we're going to talk about him in a little bit. Uh, in episode two, he kind of... Um, I think comes back a little bit from that. So in, in my estimation, uh, where I have him. So, all right. Uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to take a little break here. We'll come back and we'll talk about episode two, which is called, uh, I believe, The Rock House. Yep, The Rock House. Episode one was a million-dollar mistake, and that obviously references Sean and his losing of the ferrule rod. And episode two is The Rock House. So when we come back, we'll get to the rock house stay tuned all right welcome back let's get on to episode two the rock house they start this episode so last episode first episode went from day one to day ten I noticed when they started this episode uh, last night that they started on day five and they're going to finish on day 12. So we're kind of seeing different time periods for the different contestants. Uh, once you start us off here, Jukebox, who do, they, who do they start this episode with? So as we discussed in episode one in our segment there, there is a contestant who uh, rolls over from episode one and no pun intended, that is Roland who rolls over from episode one. So he leads us off into episode two. Um, you know, some of the events in episode two for Roland, immediately they show us that he's stocking away berries in a hollowed out log. So basically what he did is collected, forged a lot of berries, you know, put them in this log, put a top over it so that, you know, no animals can get in or it's not, you know, visibly uh, conspicuous or apparent to you know, the, the berry hunters out there. Um, but I think that, that kind of achievement or accomplishment instilled more confidence, uh, in Roland's ability to survive, to survive for me, because I'm thinking, okay, he's getting kind of practical. He's saying, let me get these berries and we put them away. 
Right. Um, and episode two, the name, the Rock House, is because of our contestant Roland. So Roland is building a permanent shelter in Stoneville. Uh, so Stoneville, the name he uh, we derive that from his willingness to collect rocks and boulders, uh, kind of in the area around his camp. And he's moving and stacking these boulders, making a pretty sturdy shelter. It's almost like a like an underground, like stone house, isn't it, Doc? Yeah, I, I got the impression as, as, as it kind of evolved during the episode and he was putting this together, I was reminded of uh, the houses in the Shire in The Hobbit, right? They're kind of built into the hillside and uh, have, have this entrance. And if you remember from The Hobbit, um, when Gandalf was in Bilbo's house, I, I kind of envision that's what Roland's going to look like in this in this stone shelter. I mean, it's going to it's going to be sturdy, but it's not going to be very high. He's going to be you know, taking up most of the space, I think. But yeah, he gave that that area the name of Stoneville because there's a lot of boulders and rocks already in that area. So he thought he'd just kind of use that natural uh, rock work in that location to kind of build the walls of the shelter. Yeah. So what he does is he fashions these stone walls, kind of into the ground there and i'd say like you said they're not like standing height i'd say it's probably what like four and a half to five feet tall probably yeah. around and uh so what he does is after placing these stones and fashioning the walls what he's going to do is he's going to put logs over the top of this for his roof now it's kind of like if you ever played the game lincoln logs it's like that so what he does is he chops down these i believe was it birch birch trees i think so yeah birch right? and spruce maybe yeah so what he does is he takes his axe and he'll chop into the birch tree. Then he'll take a saw on the other end and saw as far as he can. He'll kind of, he'll, uh, he'll fall the trees the opposite way from where he's standing. Um, and then what he does is if you've ever seen some of those strongman competitions, it's like he's, he's flipping the log, you know, so he's grabbing the log from one end, pushing all the way up, walking it up, walking it up, and then falling it obviously the opposite way. Um, from where he is in the direction he wants it to go. So once he gets these logs close to Stoneville, he's notching them at the ends to make sure they kind of fit like a, like a, like a Lego or a Lincoln log piece. Um, and it does look very sturdy. You know, I'm, I'm very excited to see the end product here. Um, uh, but I'm also a little worried because he exerts a lot of energy. You know, it's not easy moving those 200 pound logs, uh, even if they're relatively close to the shelter, that's still a lot of energy to, to flip those over and over again. And there's no sign of him eating or replenishing. So I don't know how that's going to play out. Absolutely. I mean, you, you watch these shows like Survivor, Alone, uh, Naked and Afraid, and they talk about the calorie deficit. I mean, people lose 20, 30, 40 pounds during these experiences. And so they're, they're definitely in calorie deficit. And if you're expending a ton of energy on – just lots of physical exertion and you're not taking in a lot of calories that could be problematic for you. And again, Roland is, you know, of the contestants shown in this episode, they show him the least and he, they show him for a little bit um, just like they did in episode one, but he is the continuity between the two episodes. I don't know if they, I'm sure they did that intentionally as, as kind of a connecting point between the two episodes uh, show somebody familiar as you start off with episode two be interesting to see what they do with episode three if they if they well there's after actually after this episode um, there's still just two contestants we haven't seen so they're gonna have to bring in um, repeat um, 
contestants from from previous episodes and show them. But I thought this was a very nice technique to kind of use Roland as, you know, bridging between the two episodes. Yeah, I agree. All right. So our next contestant, we, we meet him for the first time. He is Mark D'Ambrosio. He's 33 years old and he's from Portland, Oregon. And I believe they said he is a, he's, uh, was in the Marines and special ops and maybe with, maybe it was with a sniper force and he has his own business teaching, shooting and mountaineering and other types of uh, adventure activities. And he, he says he has a one-year-old son, Max, and they don't show, they don't show a wife. I think he's handing, he's handing Max off to his father when he leaves for the trip. So I wonder if he's a, a single dad. So could be. Uh, the one item we do see him with uh, early on is a gill net. And then kind of early in the episode, if we, if we track his, his events in the episode here, he finds Wolverine tracks um, uh, very early in his experience. And what he does is he erases those tracks and he comes back later to see if they reappear. Uh, so he can kind of get an idea if, the, if these tracks are active or not. Um, that gill net I referred to, he checks the gill net and he finds four fish. He takes four fish out. I think those were uh, two, two white fish and two trout and they look pretty sizable. Yeah. Like, like I said, it's not out of the ordinary to find some trophy fish in this lake. Uh, and it also seems that that gill net is pretty valuable for these contestants. A lot of them have either brought one or have fashioned one out of the materials they have and they seem to be working. So yeah, and Mark, Mark and another contestant, I think it was uh, Amos, who we're going to talk about, I think they, they used a, a tree or a log, and they strung the gill net uh, to this log and then extended the log out into the lake. And so he walks up on this log. You see the log kind of protruding in the lake, and he, he knows right away. He can see, oh, there's four fish in, in the net, and he pulls them, pulls them out. And, it, and one of the little graphics that pops up says that he's caught seven fish so far. So he's doing pretty well on the fishing side of things. Yeah, definitely. And then they also uh, show us his shelter thus far. He's got a pretty big shelter already. He's made some really good progress on that. He's, get, he's making a fireplace in his shelter. And he's, he's smoking his fish. So he's got them on these racks kind of high above the, the fire that he's built. And he's, he's smoking them. And that's a, a method for preserving the fish so that they're going to last for a while. Uh, and he's already planning to kind of uh, – moderate how much he eats of these early fish because he knows there's going to be times coming up where the fish aren't biting as well or they're not they're not going to be uh, active and getting caught in the gill net so he's already planning for for that calorie deficit by smoking his fish and like you referred to in the previous the we were talking about the previous episode he shows us in his pan uh, the fat how much fat is in his pot from fish head soup he actually asked the question how much fat is in fish head soup and evidently the answer is lots yeah um he's yeah just to touch on his fireplace is very impressive it has like stones all around it. they're high enough so it's not gonna his shelter won't catch on fire and he has he has stones placed uh kind of more over the fire so kind of overhanging kind of little stove top there um right. and then again three, above three different three different stones kind of extending in different places over the fireplace so he could he could cook three things at one time yeah, and then the uh, above those stones, I'd say probably another two to three feet is like the the branches where the fish are smoking. So, right, and uh, like I said, his shelter was pretty impressive, and he's he's going to make a door with five logs and then boughs from pine and spruce. And his whole goal is he wants to make his shelter 
predator resistant. He wants to be able to close that door uh, when he's out venturing and not have to worry about some, something getting into his shelter and just wreaking havoc and, and doing damage to all the stuff that he's done. So I think he's on a, he's, he's got a pretty good start going in terms of making that, that shelter pretty, pretty darn secure. Yeah, I would agree. I'm, I'm interested to see how predator resistant, uh, uh, a shelter like that could be, but I guess we might find out. Yeah. And they, they actually show him building a fire inside the shelter and uh, him kind of in the shelter, just kind of relaxing a little bit. And then they show a crow. They were very, the producers were very uh, obvious. They showed this crow cawing outside. And I, I all of a sudden thought, uh Oh, is this like a bad omen? Is this something bad's going to happen? Is the shelter going to catch on fire? Um, you know, he's doing all this great work or something bad going to happen, but really they were showing the crow because there was a bear in the area. And I guess birds will kind of cry out like that, um, to alert other, 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 uh, birds that there's, there's danger in the area. And so he, he listens very carefully and he goes outside and he does see that bear in the near distance. And he, he pulls a page out of Joe's notebook. And he, he's going to go, go try and confront that bear. And as he says, he's going to try and bump him off his spot, which means kind of move him. If the, if the bear has a, a regular um, area that it, it resides in, in, in Mark's area, he's going to try and bump him off of that spot and, and intimidate him and get him to try and move somewhere else. Yeah, that uh, interesting tactic. So it must be maybe widely believed that that's the – Right protocol for kind of getting a bear off your land. Yeah. And so he actually loses sight of the bear and he does his best imitation of a dying snowshoe hare to try and draw the bear in, which uh, again, pretty gutsy, I think. Yeah, didn't really uh, have any, any luck doing that, but I did, he kind of was hard on himself. He says, I probably sound horrible, but <laughs> I mean, it felt, it, it, it sounded like a fairly good, uh, dying snowshoe hair impersonation i mean it's kind of sounded like it could have been a, a wounded rabbit yeah i think we're gonna have to work on on our our dying rabbit sounds uh for our future trips you know just to have that in our repertoire yeah i don't know if i want to lure any bears in but maybe you can work on it i'll just bring the bear horn evidently we want to lure them in and then bump them off their spots so <laughs> He does not, he does, just like Joe, he does not uh, have the confrontation with the bear. The bear, bear just kind of slips off unseen. So we're not sure where that bear ends up going. So, and that's yeah. pretty much it for, for Mark in episode two. Yeah, Mark, I think also had an impressive start uh, to the show. Looks like he's uh, very disciplined, obviously a, a military veteran. Um, I don't know how much his son, you know, in the back of his mind is going to, factor into his willingness to stay out there but i think i'll take us into well the... actually before, before you get into the next contestant that's a good point that you make because though i did say earlier that you know there have been 15 instances from prior seasons where people have been pulled out because of low body mass index and, and basically starvation there have been several people who are doing you know actually pretty well physically they're they're catching fish and they're uh, they've got game and they've got their shelter up and you think, oh, and these guys look like they can stay out forever. And it is the solitude. It is the silence. It is the being alone with yourself that just kind of drives them crazy and the longing for their family and what's back home that they eventually tap out and say, I can't take it anymore. While they're physically doing well, 
there's a huge mental side of this game as well. Being able to just be out there alone by yourself and comfortable uh, being by yourself. Uh, kind of like the, intro, the, the, the intro quote that, that uh, you did for this pod. Yeah, either a beast or a god. That's right. Um, yeah, I think a lot. I, I don't know. Uh, my memory's kind of hazy, but I feel like a lot of the contestants say, like, oh, I love the quiet. I like being out here alone. In the beginning, I feel like it's very easy to say until it's, it's day 45 and you're looking around and, and there's still nobody there. So I feel like it, it definitely gets progressively more challenging uh, yeah. for our contestants. And I'm going to say this tongue in cheek because I know there's no comparison, but it's like at the start of quarantine, like you have to stay home. I'm like, all right, hey, I can make that work. I, I can, I can, you know, make staying at home, keep it to myself, not a problem. I was sheltering in place before it was, before it was popular, but you know, three months in, you're like, okay, I need to get out. I need to do something. I want to do something. And people are kind of going a little bit stir crazy. And you can kind of, if you take that to the extreme with these guys out there uh, in the wilderness completely by themselves for months, uh, you can certainly see how, how that has an impact on people. Yeah, definitely. So without further ado, I'll move on to our next contestant, Callie Russell. Um, she is 31 from Flathead Valley, Montana. Um, and like I talked about with a previous winner of season six, Jordan Jonas, you know, maybe Callie's background is going to aid her in this endeavor because she is a nomad. She does not live in a house. Uh, she lives in a tent, in a cave, in a tarp. Um, you know, she... They show some scenes of her making homemade fish traps. Uh, she tracks mountain lions when the season is, uh, is proper. She hunts with bows. Uh, and Doc, maybe you can elaborate on some of this other background information. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, they, the show, specifics. Her, they show her with her, she refers to him as, as her sweetheart, uh, Joshua, who kind of lives that same lifestyle with her. And uh, I think she really sees this as kind of, an opportunity as a, as a rite of passage for her. So she's, she's pretty excited about being on the show. Yeah. And uh, you know, some of the events they show in episode two here, uh, she stumbles upon a lucky rabbit foot. Um, and although to the, to the non superstitious average viewer that this rabbit foot is just that a rabbit foot. Um, it is believed by, be more superstitious that this is lucky. It does have some, some power to it. Uh, maybe a good omen instead of the bad omen of the, the raven or crow calling. I'll tell you um, what, it's not lucky. It's not lucky for the rabbit. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, she sets some snares for squirrels and rabbits. Uh, you know, that's part of the item she brings is snare wire that's made apparent to us as well as the tarp. Um, Pretty early on in her experience, she sees a wolf very close. It looks like it's what, like 20 yards away? It looked Doc, pretty close. I, I don't know. I don't know what the zoom was set on, but it looked pretty close. Yeah. And, you know, this is going to go to my power rankings here. Upon seeing these wolves, she sees five wolves and she says, I think I'm going to follow them. I probably shouldn't, but I think I'm going to. And I don't think that that's the decision making uh, that is going to be most conducive to surviving 100 days out there. Uh, on day six, she realizes that she's going to have to compete with these wolves for food, so she decides she's going to have to move. Uh, she really struggles to find a shelter spot. She can't really decide where the best spot is. You know, she says, I'm on a cliff here. There's not a really good spot. 
Um, I'm gonna have to level out this ground. Not many flat places that she can place her shelter on. Yeah, that almost uh, seems to be a theme for her for this episode is shelter. Where do I where do I build my shelter? She seems to struggle with that the entire episode. You know, but one thing I really like about Callie is she does not seem to panic. Um, you know, I think a lot of people would see a pack of wolves, you know. I don't know if there's any truth to this, but I feel like when you see five wolves, there's probably 20 more somewhere close by. Uh, kind of like the whole cockroaches thing. If you've seen one cockroach, <laughs> there's probably like 100 more. You know, I feel like wolves don't necessarily travel in packs of five. I think they're probably larger packs. Um, but she doesn't panic. Um, and even though most of these contestants you'll see, they're saying, okay, I have to lock down a shelter spot. I really got to put in a lot of work, you know, something like Roland's doing, or even Mark, they're making these sturdy shelters. She doesn't panic. She says, okay, I need to find a good spot. She's thinking long-term. You can already tell that she's kind of exuding confidence in her ability to remain calm, find the right spot rather than rushing to it. Uh, so she kind of sets up her shelter. It's just kind of a frame of a tent and she puts her tarp over that. It's, it's very windy. Um, she laments the fact that she's late getting this done and that the shelter is kind of shabby. Uh, like I said, the lamenting isn't necessarily the panic button. Um, in day 11, she decides to even move this camp uh, it, and, and move from her current spot. It is very windy. Uh, yeah, she, she finds us. She actually moves three times. She moves yeah. once away from the wolves, and then she moves once she decides it's too windy. So she's constantly throughout the episode looking for the right place for her, for her shelter. Yeah, she, uh, she eventually finds a spot uneven. She goes back to get some things, um, and she ends up hunting down a porcupine. Now, this journey was kind of awkward getting the porcupine because she was shooting down at it into some rocks, correct, Doc? Yeah, the, uh, the terrain that she was covering, I thought when they, when they showed her, uh, when she was filming and she's walking down these rocks to get you know, down to her shelter, her previous shelter where her supplies were, kind of at a lower elevation, and it was pretty steep. And there, she was going like rock hopping from, from one to the next. And I thought, okay, the, this is getting pretty dramatic. And I wonder if she's going to fall or not. But actually, she sees something down in between the rocks. It looks to be like you know, 15, 20 feet down in between these rocks uh, where she sees this porcupine. Yeah, and so she shoots this thing. And it appears to be dead from the image we get to see from her camera footage. But I was kind of nervous because she has to hope that that thing is actually dead. Because if she goes down there to get it, she might get quilled, you know? Yeah, she actually, did you notice that she used two different types of arrows? One was a blunt tip arrow, which kind of has a, a flat, it's almost like you're shooting a stick at it, right? With a flat end on it. And that is used to, to stun the animal. And I guess maybe try and kill it without puncturing the, the hide. Uh, but she follows that up. She hits it with the blunt, the blunt tip arrow, but she follows it up with a, kind of a traditional sharp tip arrow to make sure. Uh, but yeah, she kind of looks at it for a little bit. To, she's not sure if it's if it's dead or not. It's down there in, in some kind of crevice. Or uh, I was wondering if she was going to get get uh, quilled or or not, trying to retrieve him. Yeah, it was uh, it was impressive. Although she may have doesn't have the best percentage on finding good shelter locations, she's hundred percent on her uh, porcupine hunting so far. So good percentage. Yep. And again, she kind of thanks the porcupine for, for giving up the life. She, she realizes um, the sacrifice and, and appreciates that and, and 
goes ahead and kind of prepares the porcupine just like uh who was that first contestant we were talking about early on was that Joe? sean john sean that's john right. yeah yep all right doc you want to take us to the next contestant on the show you got it so our next contestant is Corey hawk who is 30 years old from plattsmouth Plattsmouth, Nebraska. Oh, that's Plattsmouth or Plattsmouth. So my apologies to our folks in Nebraska. Uh, some of the background information on him. He is skilled at uh, the bow and arrow. He, he, he actually says that sets him apart. His skills with a bow and arrow set him apart. And he comes from a long line of hunters and gatherers. Although I think uh, each of us uh, might be able to say that because, you know, you go back far enough in history they were all hunters and gatherers weren't they <laughs> they were they were maybe, maybe he had some more recent hunters and gatherers in his line though so uh, he was also in the marines he did two tours in afghanistan and uh, he is not uh, i'm not gonna say tied down but he he doesn't have a wife he doesn't have kids i think he's single and he wants to take the winnings from this show the million dollars and wants to homestead so i think he wants to acquire some property and, and continue living this, this lifestyle of, you know, hunting, hunting and gathering. Um, he obviously has at the very beginning a bow, a tarp, an ax. I think uh, that's pretty consistent among all our contestants. And early on he, he hunts and he, he kills a squirrel pretty successful right off the bat. And he, he cleans that squirrel down by the water again, not by his camp, wanting to keep predators away from the camp. Um, and then they, they kind of show um, through his experience that it can be kind of tedious out there always having to boil your water. He actually makes a comment about that, that, you know, you need to drink throughout the day, but you can't just drink and hope you're not going to get sick by you know, drinking unfiltered water or unboiled water. So it, the, the act of drinking or taking a drink is not just getting something out of the tap like we do here at home. It's, it's the task of, uh, getting the water, starting a fire, boiling the water, letting it cool down so you can drink it. And that's a, you know, 15 to 20 minute process every time you're thirsty. Yeah. I like, I kind of like those in-depth looks because I feel like everyone assumes like, Oh, the big challenges here is going to be hunting and fishing and building my shelter. And not everyone takes the time to think, okay, well, I got to make sure my water's clean. I have to get water, you know, I have to boil it and kind of all the facets of drinking safe, clean water. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Good point. And so he, he, uh, they also show him working on his shelter and he's working on a kind of an A-frame shelter with a, with a raised platform for firewood and uh, also a, a bed and a fireplace. And he's doing the same kind of thing that, that uh, Keelan was doing and doing that moss chinking. So stuffing mud and moss in between the, the logs to help insulate his, his shelter. And he's feeling pretty good about this. Uh, he he's actually makes the statement that he's confident uh, that he can finish the shelter today. And this is, this is day eight, according to the graphic on the show. And as, no sooner does that statement come out of his mouth that he, he's confident he can finish that shelter, that he actually goes down. He falls while he's carrying a big log. And he says that he felt a pop in his left knee. And this does not bode well for, uh, for our guy, Corey. <clears throat> So he fell in a hole, but he, he, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, they kind of go to a, a commercial right when he falls and he goes, oh, I, I felt something pop in my left knee. And they come back from the commercial and he says, yeah, I fell in a hole, but he gets up and he grabs that log and he keeps on going. So I'm thinking, oh, this is just some of that fake uh, created drama 
by the show to keep you tuned in. But it definitely turns out to be a pretty serious injury as, as time progresses. Yeah, I wasn't sure how that was going to play out because, you know, not to compare it to any injury I've had necessarily, but sometimes you get these little tweaks here and there, and they're only, they're only around for a little while. You know, sometimes they just loosen back up and you're okay. But evidently it kind of plagued him on the show here. So, Yeah, and so, he, you know, though he got a squirrel on the first day that they, they showed him to us, uh, evidently he has not been too successful in acquiring food. So he's only eaten one squirrel and mostly berries the – the whole time so he's now 10 days in this is now a couple days later after the the knee and he's already having to carve a new hole in his belt because he's already gone past what that belt can accommodate he's already lost so much weight that you know he's, he's gone past his belt and he decides he, he actually makes a gill net and is going to start using a gill net to see if he can get any fish and as he they're showing him doing this he's kind of making comments about his knee and how it's kind of getting worse and not feeling too good but he does, he does get uh, the gill net into the water, and he is successful in catching a fish. And it's a decent-sized fish, but he, he kind of reveals that he, he's tweaked his knee again, and um, the knee just keeps getting worse. And he reaches back, and he feels, and he's got this big, uh, huge fluid sack on the back of his knee, and it's kind of hard, of hard as a rock. And I thought it was pretty funny. He actually drops his drawers and bends over towards the camera to show the back of his, his both of his knees as kind of a comparison of, okay, this, this knee is regular. And you can see this large mass on the back of my knee here where, you know, the injury took place. Yeah, that was an interesting look we had with that. You could definitely tell from the image that there was a, a fluid sack back there on his knee. And I guess that's not the first time he's had an injury like this because he was pretty familiar with it. He called it a, a baker's cyst, and that comes from torn cartilage and fluid leaking and, and causing that, that sack to build up. And if that sack ruptures, they said that it could go septic. And, of course, you know, the graphic pops up on the screen talking about sepsis and how serious that could be. Uh, that, could be that could be deadly. And so actually he's, he's laying down in his tent and he's already feel, he's feeling hot and feverish. He's not feeling too good. He doesn't sleep hardly at all. And uh, he gets up in the morning and sure enough, that knee is not getting any better whatsoever. And so he, he makes the decision that um, he's not going to take any chances here. This could get pretty bad. He's got a long way to go. He's got 88 more days to go. if He's going to try and make a hundred and he, right. he pushes the button and taps out. He taps out on day 12. Yeah, I don't blame him. It's not, you know, you know your body better than anybody else. And obviously he's had problems with that knee before. And this the little cyst there is very apparent. And, you know, the pain got worse. And having a hot feverish feeling that, that night is not reassuring or showing any signs of getting better. So it's I totally understand why he tapped out. Yeah, it's also indicative of you can have you can have a very prepared contestant. I mean, this guy was was a uh, a marine with two tours in Afghanistan and had all kinds of skills. And it's just one little accident, one little mishap that can really change the change the game for you, and make be the difference between twelve days and a hundred days. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like they were all talking about that on the kind of the post show discussion with. Uh, I don't know if we mentioned it, Doc, with Colby Donaldson. Yeah, uh, I, don't think, I don't think we did mention that, yeah. 
But basically all of the contestants were talking about how it doesn't really matter how well you're prepared for the show, that any little thing can happen and it kind of ends up ruining your time. It also kind of also gave me a viewpoint as in if you have a little injury and you start off with a little injury that you're going to have to monitor that closely because it could turn into a big injury and it could take you out of the game because you have to think long term. That's right. And for our listeners out there who don't know who Colby Donaldson is, he is a uh, former contestant. Did he win Survivor? I'm not sure. I'll have to, to look that up. Yeah, take a look. Yeah, I know he was a fan favorite. And so uh, History Channel has enlisted him to be kind of the post-show host. I think there's like 10, 15 minutes after each episode. And he kind of debriefs uh, with the contestants of that episode to kind of talk about some of the events that took place and show some footage that uh, didn't make it necessarily to the episode, kind of behind-the-scenes footage uh, never seen before. I think it was a pretty, it's a pretty good feature to kind of hear what the contestants are, are thinking um, Yeah. in retrospect. Col- Colby was runner-up on Survivor, the Australian Outback. There you go. Okay. Very good. All right. So we have our second contestant now who is tapped out, uh, Corey Hawk. Um, knee injury, down and out. So why don't you talk about the, the last contestant of this episode? Yeah, so the last contestant, they don't give him too much screen time. I'm assuming he might be one of those rollovers into episode three. Um, but our last contestant on this episode is Amos Rodriguez, and he is 40 years old from Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, a very interesting background. I would say probably the most interesting background of our contestants so far Uh, He grew up at a time during the El Salvador Civil War, which is where he really learned his survival techniques in the woods during the war. So, you know, Amos has been in some necessary survival conditions. It was really life or death. Um, He's he's really aware of his surroundings. He's always been. He actually teaches survival in the United States. And I believe he has two daughters, correct? That's correct. Uh, Yes, two daughters. Yep. Yeah, two daughters. And so some of the items that are notable and apparent that we've seen Amos have, he has a gill net, a a machete, and a pot. Um, So some of the events that they show us in this episode, Amos catches some fish in a gill net. Uh, He thanks the fish for its life. It even has, there's even fish eggs, which are a a good source of, I think, omega, something like that. some sort of nutrient with the word omega, and I'm trying to think of the word. Omega-3, maybe? Yeah, omega-3. Um, a wolverine almost comes in and gets his fish. Uh, so important to follow some of those recommendations. You know, make sure your fish are close to you. And uh, one reason I really like him most is because he says that he's not out here for the money. Um, he's out here to become a better man for his society. So that's sort of a – that tells you a lot about him. I think he's going he's gonna to be one of the favorites this season, although we haven't seen all the contestants, but that's just my opinion right now. Yeah, not a lot of screen time for, for Amos, but uh, he was pretty impressive with what we did see. And I think you're right. I think they're probably going to use that same technique where they're gonna, he's going to be a, a repeat customer on, on episode three. Maybe they start with him episode three to kind of continue that, uh, that continuity between the episodes. So... All right. Hey, this brings us to our, our regular segments with the top three quotes. What do you have for your top three quotes for, for episode two? So I would say my favorite quote from episode two is from Amos when he says, uh, I'm not out here for the money. I'm out here to become a better man for my society. I think that 
Not that the other contestants heard that, but it is kind of intimidating to have someone out there who's really been in some scary situations. Obviously, we have some military veterans, you know, who have taken tours in Afghanistan, but a civil war surviving in the woods is no joke. So definitely, I'm going to weigh in with a quote from Callie. I think you touched upon it earlier, but after seeing those five wolves, she says, I don't know why, but I'm going to follow the wolves. And that kind of kind of struck me a little bit funny because I'm not sure that I would follow the wolves. You know, I understand uh, kind of in hindsight why the two guys kind of tried to chase off the bears, but I'm not sure why you would follow five wolves. I, I think that's just asking for trouble. Yeah, definitely. Um, my second quote would be from our second contestant who tapped out, Corey Hawk. Um, upon killing the squirrel, he says, thanks for your life, little dude. Uh, and I like that just because it just shows that our contestants are very, uh, they're one with the nature. You know, they feel themselves as a part of the ecosystem and they kind of understand the consequences and what a life of an animal means to them out there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, my next quote comes from Corey as well. He said, I think early on, he said, adapt, improvise, and overcome. That's what they say in the Marines. And that seemed like that was going to serve him very well in alone before he, he ran into that little mishap with his knee. Yeah, definitely. And I don't have a third quote selected here, Doc. So maybe you should just finish up this portion. Okay. And I think it's a good juxtaposition because though Corey said, adapt, improvise, and overcome, that's what they say in the Marines. My next quote also comes from Corey. And it's at the end of his, his uh, time on alone where he says, I can't risk my future for this show. So he can't risk, you know, permanently damaging that knee or putting his life in jeopardy uh, just for the show. He realizes that and he, he pushes the button to tap out. Yeah, that is a, that is a good quote and puts the, the challenge in a perspective. All right, should we go to uh, who's thriving this episode? Who do you have as thriving? Who's your number one contestant of this episode? Uh, number one contestant, I think I'm going to have to go with Mark. You know, I think Mark is doing a great job. He's, you know, showing promising fishing. He's caught seven fish so far. Um, he's, you know, becoming more curious about the predators in the area. He's trying to track and see if these wolverines are really going to be pestering him a while. Um, his shelter looks pretty sturdy. The fireplace is impressive. We talked about him smoking the fish. Um, so I would say I'm, I'm, I'm probably on board with uh, Mark being the number one thriving contestant on this episode. That's funny. We, you know, we, don't, we don't talk about who, who we're picking for. We don't talk about the quotes. We don't talk about who's thriving and who's struggling. Um, and we haven't talked about power rankings. But you and I are on the same page again on this. I, I agree. I think Mark is thriving. He's, he, I think he's, he's the top candidate of this particular episode. Like you said, all kinds of fish. His shelter's pretty much pretty badass at this point. And again, he's, he's a guy who's chasing after a bear to scare him out of his area. So I thought that was uh, all weighed in his favor. Yeah, and I, uh, I guess I could go to barely surviving. For yes. My contestant, I think it's, although I was heaping praise on her, I think Callie is probably – our barely surviving contestant for this episode. I think that her shelter mishaps might come back to, to, to haunt her. You know, if she can't get situated in a, a sturdy shelter, I think that's something that's going to affect her ability to succeed and start planning for the future. Yeah. Again, we, we agree. She's out there following wolves for no good reason. 
Um, she's had to move her shelter twice and seems to be struggling a little bit out there. So I had her as, as our struggling contestant as well. All right. Yeah, I, I would say Amosa is somewhere in the middle, like, like we talked about, not a lot of screen time. So not a lot for us to judge right now. Which brings us to our power rankings after episodes one and two. We'll do this at the end of each of our podcast episodes. So now we here, here we are at the, the end of our podcast episode, but our power rankings are going to encompass uh, both of the, the first two episodes of Alone Season 7. So you want me to go first and you weigh in on whether or not you disagree with my rankings? Yeah, are we excluding the two contestants who have already tapped out, correct? Yeah, so I, I have a power rankings one through six. So I, I have Sean and Corey are both out at this point, so I'm not including them. And we have not yet seen Keith Sires or Joel Vanderloon. So they're not in the, in the power rankings. So I just have six. Yep, go for it. I will, uh, yeah, we'll just go. You present your list, and I'll say whether I agree or disagree. Okay. So I'm going to go number one is Joe. Guy killed a squirrel with a rock throw, and he's out there chasing a bear. So that, that right there, he's number one in my book. Uh, number two, Mark catching a lot of fish, also chasing that bear out of his territory. Uh, Roland has crept up now in, now that we've seen him in two episodes. I've got him number three. He's wow. Got, uh, he's, he's expending a lot of energy in building this rock house, but I think when he's done with that rock house, it's going to be – Pretty, pretty impressive and a good place to kind of uh, withstand the apocalypse. Number four, I've got Keelan. She's got a, a good shelter and a pretty impressive snot rocket. So that puts her at number four in my book. Number five, I've got uh, Amos. He's promising. Uh, like you said, he's got a great background, a lot of, I think, some good skills, but I haven't seen enough of him yet to kind of move him up the charts. Maybe that'll change in episode three. And then at the bottom of, of our current power rankings, I've got Callie. And it's, it's because of that having to move her shelter three times um, and not really seeming too grounded at this point. Uh, but she could surprise us in, in future episodes. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not counting her out by any means. Well, Doc, I think this is the most believable instance of us keeping these lists a secret from each other because I disagree with you on five out of your top six power ranking here. <laughs> okay. So number one, uh, our first two are the same except in reverse order. Number one, I have Mark. Um, although Joe's squirrel throw was very impressive, I don't find that to be a sustainable survival technique compared to the fishing that Mark has displayed. You know, I feel like Mark is using the ecosystem to his advantage he knows the fish are abundant he's shown that he's caught seven he's smoking them his shelter is sturdy um i feel like i've yet to see that consistency from joe yeah you don't uh, know that that's not a consistent survival technique maybe that guy's got you know, he's got a backpack full of rocks and he's just going to be coming back with six ten twelve hairs at a time if that was the case there would be folk lords about joe already so <laughs> Number two, I do have Joe because, like I said, I'm very intrigued with his knowledge-based approach uh, to what's going on around him. And uh, obviously, the rock throw is impressive. Uh, number three, I have Keelan. I'm, I'm big on Keelan. I think, I, think she's, uh, I think she's used to being out there like this. It looks like her background is going to come in handy. You know, she's been through some of the toughest elements. Um, I think she makes sound decisions as well, you know. Obviously showed a little bit of motion when she had to kill that rabbit, but who wouldn't? 
Um, so I'm not going to hold that against her. Number four, I have Amos. I feel like you said, same thing. His background is very impressive. He's been in legitimate survival experiences where he did not have the opportunity to tap out. So there's nothing here that's making me believe that he's going to willingly uh, tap out, you know, and he's, it's bigger than the money for him. It's, it's about improving himself and becoming a better member of his society. Uh, and number five, I have Roland. Like I said, the shelter is extremely impressive, but it's only a, a, a fraction of the game. You know, I've yet to see him have any kind of real food other than the berries and the ants he's been eating. <laughs> so as soon as I start to see that, I could easily uh, find myself putting Roland a lot higher on the power rankings. Um, and number six, I have Callie. Obviously not a fan of chasing wolves. Um, and the shelter mishaps are a big red flag. So. All right. Fair enough. I like the fact that we have different power rankings. We can kind of uh, keep that uh, pinned to a bulletin board somewhere and come back to it and see, you know, who was, who was more accurate as the season progresses. But we, we still have to see a couple more contestants. Like you said, I imagine we're probably going to see uh, Amos early on in episode three, and then we'll see the introduction of uh, Keith and Joel kind of their backstory and, and what their first days look like. And then I think we'll probably get into a regular rotation of, of all the contestants as we proceed towards that magical 100th day out there. All right. Did you have a chance to watch the trailer for next week's episode? I did. I did see a small trailer at the end. Uh, the only thing I remember in particular was somebody falling down from chopping a tree. Looks like they had like a, a homemade ladder that they might have collapsed on them or something like that. Yeah. Do you ever, you ever, I'm sure you do on like Twitter, you see those accounts that are like, you know, Darwin awards where people are doing stupid stuff. This kind right. of struck me as a dangerous situation that um, maybe you shouldn't be doing out there standing on a homemade ladder. I don't know how many feet up, 10 feet up, 12 feet up and cutting a tree kind of mid level and that tree falls and takes you down with it. Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't look like something I would do. Did you recognize who that was that was chopping? I could not tell. I, I think it was definitely a male. Um, it, didn't look, uh, it didn't look like Roland or Amos, so I'm inclined to say it's probably either Mark or Joe. Or maybe, maybe one of the two contestants we haven't seen yet. Or maybe one of the two contestants we haven't seen yet, yeah. Yeah. They showed another scene in the trailer for next week. Uh, someone was listening at night and reported hearing a wolverine either near their camp or in their camp. And then something else was seemed to be just a, you know, 10, 15, 20 yards away. And then my DVR stopped and, and cut off the recording. So I'm not sure what that was all about, but uh, evidently there are kind of predators lurking about and getting closer to our contestants. Yeah. I have a feeling that these trailers for the episodes are going to be pretty similar with something being 10 to 20 yards away. I feel like it's a, it's a pretty reliable hook for a survivalist show. That's right. Yeah. Draw you in. Yep. Yeah. Now, hey, now a word about next week's episode of Solitude, the Alone Companion Pod. Uh, we actually are going to be on the trail next week when episode three comes out. We're going to be on the Trans-Catalina Trail. So when we get back from, from that hike, we'll have to take a, a, a look at that episode and record the, the podcast after that. So uh, we'll see how it works out next week. It may be that we have another double episode for you. We'll try and do one for episode three and then a separate one for episode four, but we'll see how it works out with everything. Yeah, this, I think this episode one is uh, a lot to digest for, the, for our, our listeners and our viewers. So 
you know, feel free to sparse this into a couple different parts and, uh, you know, take your time listening. We'll get back to you as soon as we get back from the trail. All right. Any words of wisdom as we wrap up this episode? Do you have a, a, a cute tagline or anything we should, we should finish with? I do not other than just don't, don't, don't go following the wolves. I would say. Don't go following the wolves. And I'm going to borrow a quote. Maybe this is what we're going to, we're going to finish with this. Uh, I may regret this, but I'm going to do it. Story of my life. All right. Solitude out. Peace. Mm -hmm.